It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our biological family. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My guest today is a mental health therapist with a private practice in Utah. Her personal experience as a domestic adoptee has given her valuable insight into the complexities of identity, self-discovery, and carrying the wounds of deep trauma. We met in 2021 at the NAP, National Association of Adoptees and Parents Conference, and at the time of this recording, we're preparing to be together again for the Hyrith Hope and Healing Retreat. Her name is Kristen Jones. Her passion lies in facilitating change and growth, empowering individuals to overcome their obstacles and live fulfilling lives. In this episode, Kristen will share a part of her relinquishment, adoption, search, and reunion journey. She's been a guest on Adoptees On, hosted by Haley Racky, episode 109. I highly recommend you take a listen to her speak about self-compassion. I currently enjoy getting to know Kristen better in the Adoptee Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly, where she is eager to give and receive support from our community. Her feedback to other writers is thoughtful, insightful, and meaningful. I always look forward to what she has to say to encourage all of us. Allow me to introduce you to a writer, an avid reader, and a great listener who enjoys yoga, travel, paddle boarding, and biking. I find myself nodding my head in agreement when she opens up about how our perspectives as adoptees often shifts as we continue down the path of healing from feelings of rejection, inferiority, in sorrow. Well, Kristen, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you today. And let's just start with how are you doing in Utah, not far from Salt Lake City, right? Yeah, not too far. We're kind of in the suburb. We're in a little town called uh, South Jordan. Actually, it's not little. It's a big city, but it is connected to Salt Lake City. And the weather's beautiful today. And I'm on vacation, so I have a break from work. And it's good right now. Fantastic. So I know we met at the NAP conference in 2021. Yeah, you reminded me that you took the picture of Kate Murphy, Rich House, and myself. Yeah, that was a a really good weekend. Did you enjoy it? It was. It was a great weekend. And it was such a brief meeting, you and I. So I'm glad that we get more opportunities in the future. As a matter of fact, we'll see each other again this year at the Hyrith Hope and Healing Retreat. Uh, This 
recording will air afterwards. I am so excited to be a part of that event, and I know you have done it before in the past. So let's start there. Like, what what are your thoughts about this retreat in 2023, the last one they're going to have? Yeah, so... This year, they're going to have this year, I should say. Yeah, the last one this year. <laughs> yep. I did their retreat in Arizona. That was last year, 2022. I presented a workshop there, or I led a workshop there. And um, I think they do such a great job bringing together various members of communities that have experienced some type of, oh, what would you say? Like a parental loss? whether it's been through adoption or as someone who discovers late in life that who they thought was their parent, biological parent was not, or donor conceived people. So bringing those different communities together, I think is really interesting to me in knowing our commonalities and also our differences and kind of um, supporting each other. So I think they do a great job of that. And then it's it's a smaller group, I think about 25 people. So you really get to know people and have more maybe personal connections and intimate conversations than you would in some of the bigger, like we didn't get much chance to do that when we were in Indiana. Right. Well, shout out to Aaron, Cindy and Annie. I hear they just do a wonderful job with the three retreats each year, doing a workshop with Kate Murphy. I'm just thrilled that she invited me to be a part of that. And so I'm so looking forward to it. And I have to have you back on afterwards so we can share with the audience what that experience was like. Ooh, I think that's a great idea. That would be a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. I know that you have a master's of science in educational psychology with an emphasis in mental health counseling from the University of Utah. That's pretty special. And so (laughs) I think, you know, like whenever I talk to therapists, I think that you all carry a lot in terms of the work that you do. And, And particularly as an adopted person, I would imagine that things might come up for you when you're working with clients. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So I see, I probably have right now, probably about mm, a quarter of my caseload are actually adoptees. And I love working with adoptees and I work with people of all ages. So I work with kids, teens, and adults. So it's kind of interesting to work with an adult adoptee compared to maybe working with a child or a teenager, just in in kind of the differences and how they're processing things and, you know, their perspectives on it. And sometimes my own stuff comes up, although over the years I've developed some strategies or tools to kind of help me when I'm at work to contain my own, I don't know, my own stuff <laughs> so that it doesn't kind of come up too much or interfere too much in the process of helping someone else. But it does sometimes. And the most important thing, I guess, is being aware of it, you know, being able to notice it when it's coming up so that I can do something to manage it, like maybe take a few deep breaths or kind of shift a little bit the conversation until I can move back into that space. So that's been really helpful to me. But the thing I love the most about being a therapist, and this isn't necessarily specific to adoption, is I love having this sort of bird's eye perspective of 
what it means to be human. So what I know is that none of us can avoid suffering, that we all carry something. But what I also know is that we're all so resilient, you know, that we, we have this tremendous capacity to carry trauma and also to move through the world. Like I'm just so amazed every day by my clients and some of the things that they do and say and think it just is remarkable to me in that way. So I do love being a therapist, even though it it does sometimes take a toll. Sure. Before I pushed record earlier, you, you asked me, yeah, I would imagine in your career in law enforcement, you carried a lot too. And absolutely. There's yeah. no doubt about it. And I even remember a case, maybe right around 2008, working as a detective, where a 13-year-old was pregnant and it was statutory. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't forced rape. It was that she couldn't give consent because of her right. age to have sex yeah. in the state of Illinois. So she became pregnant from a boyfriend. And I remember the mother saying that this baby we're not keeping. This baby's going to be relinquished. And she went about mm-hmm. the business of setting up a plan. And I remember carrying that case for a long time in my in my body, right? Because I, as an adopted person, yeah, I've had thoughts and feelings about that decision. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, because the the mother, even though she was so young, she wanted to keep her baby. Mm, So yeah, there are are heavy things that in our professions, in our careers can activate things that make us who we are. Yeah. And we do have to to manage it and figure out ways and use tools to get through that emotionally. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about your relinquishment and adoption journey would be great. Okay. Well, I was born in uh, 1968, California. I'm considered a domestic adoptee. So maybe for those listening who might not know, that means I was adopted within this country, within the United States. I'm also the same race as my parents. So my parents are white, I am white, which I think sometimes there's added complexities with things like transracial adoption or international adoption. My adopted parents, so they were notified that a baby girl was born. It's my understanding that there was a network of attorneys across the United States in that era that did adoptions. And so they would be in contact with each other, communication with each other. When a baby was sort of available, I mean, it's hard to even use that kind of language, isn't it? Because it sounds like being such a product. (laughs) You know, when a baby came available for adoption, these attorneys would communicate with each other. Um, So my adopted parents had an attorney and I assume their attorney was contacted by my birth mother's attorney. And they flew to California uh, that day. I like dropped everything. My mom says she quit her job that day <laughs> mm. um, so she could be a stay-at-home mom. And they flew to California to get me. And this was December. So in Utah, it's pretty bad weather. Their flight was delayed by a big storm here in Utah. And so my adopted mom had an aunt and uncle who lived in California near the same place where I was adopted from. There's a story that I used to love hearing as a kid. I don't like it so much now. Actually, there's parts of it I don't like at all now, but I 
but I really loved this story as a kid. So there was this storm and we couldn't fly home. And so they went to this aunt and uncle's house. They had a little girl and she had a doll crib. And so that doll crib is where I spent my first night. The next day they were able to fly home to Utah. And because it was Christmas time and they had a Christmas tree up, they put me under the Christmas tree. And so the story was that I was their greatest gift, which, you know, that's such a, I think that's a phrase that's so activating for many of us as adoptees. But when I was a kid, when I was little, like, that was cool. It did. It made me feel special. (laughs) And now when I hear the story, I just, I cringe. It's so hard for me. And it's interesting how things can shift. And I, and I think that's really important for us to remember as adoptees and for people who are trying to support an adoptee is that our feelings and our thoughts about our experiences can shift and often do shift. It's important to maybe just acknowledge the shift without any kind of judgment of it. Mm-hmm. Just be aware of it. Yep, just the awareness of it. So when I was little, I loved this story. And now I just, it's a very difficult story for me to tell. <laughs> I can feel myself kind of getting choked up as I tell it. And it, and it's a difficult story to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that. It can shift. Yeah, I've had many shifts go on, even in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Being aware of it has made a big difference. I think many times in the past, I wasn't aware of the shifts. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think awareness helps? Because I think awareness helps me carry it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And know what to do next. Like, yes, if I notice the shift happening and maybe my emotional stability has shifted a little bit, then what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll t- go turn on some music or pick up a Tara Brock book, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> we were talking about radical acceptance and I know, yeah. excuse me, listeners, please forgive me. I know I've <laughs> said it too many times during recordings about this book. It's just been life giving. So yeah, just knowing what to do next when you feel the shift is so important. Yeah. And it helps me to be able to also to identify what the shift is related to, mm. because sometimes it's very obvious, right? If we're, if we're talking about something adoption related, then the shift I can easily see is related to, you know, my experience as an adoptee. However, if I'm shifting because I'm perceiving rejection from someone, even if I'm not being rejected, I might perceive rejection because I'm kind of sensitive to that. Now I know, oh, that's related to my relinquishment trauma. And so knowing that helps me recognize, like, it's not really what's happening right now in the moment. It's what happened back then. Mm. And so maybe whatever my partner or kid or friend said that made me feel kind of this feeling in my body that told me that I'm, oh, I'm being rejected, even though I'm not. Now I can say, oh, that's related to relinquishment trauma. It's not related to what's happening right now. And that helps me manage it too. Yes. I had an opportunity to listen to your episode on Adoptees On hosted by Haley Racky. And for Mm -hmm. the listeners, I recommend you go listen to episode 109 because you talk about self-compassion so beautifully. I think that that is what I'm practicing more of, particularly when I 
am aware of the shifts. Mm, yeah, yes. Such a powerful tool and hard to do. <laughs> like, I really want to put that out there because I think sometimes, especially if you go to therapy, like the therapist will say, oh, try this or try that. We don't always kind of mention the part of this stuff is hard. Right. right? The, the concept of radical acceptance, that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And sometimes to be kind to ourselves is like the hardest thing. So knowing like also that it's hard as we try to do these things, I think is important. It is. But when you phrase it like treat yourself like you would treat a friend, Mm -hmm. like like that, I'm like, oh, I know how to do that. Yeah, right. Most of us do. Most of us are pretty good to our friends. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And when I was in therapy years ago, back in the 90s, that's kind of how my therapist approached me with things that I would beat myself up with. He said, well, would you beat mm-hmm. your friend up like that? Yeah. And I was like, no, I wouldn't. Would you Would you respond <laughs> like that to your friend? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. no, I wouldn't. And it was almost <laughs> like it was silly, right? It was silly that it was easy for me not to treat a friend that way. But then why wouldn't I be a friend to myself? Yeah. Would you say you had a healthy childhood in the adoptive home? Mm, That's a good question. Yes, for the most part. I do believe that my parents did the best they could. I always knew that I was adopted. I can't remember a time when I didn't. There was this picture book that they had. I don't know if anyone else maybe had this, but probably, I'm guessing they did. It was called I Was Adopted. What I remember the most about it is this little girl on a skateboard because I thought that was so cool. It's this story about being adopted. Again, it was one of those things that as a kid, I really liked this this book. But as an adult, when I read it, I just, oh, it's just awful. You know, I do think they tried and I think they made mistakes and we all do as parents and, and I can give them some grace for that. I do recognize, and especially my mom, you know, kind of held her own trauma about not being able to have children of her own, you know, biological children. That was pretty important to them, both culturally, I think at the time, you know, the 70s, late 60s and 70s, that was a big deal uh, for women. Being a mother, that was kind of an important identity. And I grew up uh, Mormon. They were very active, believing Mormons, and I grew up that way. And, you know, motherhood is kind of considered just almost a godly calling. And so, you know, now reflecting and looking back, I can really see how she was carrying her own stuff and how that may have impacted the way that she parented. I think it was relatively healthy. I think they did their best. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped asking happy. Yeah. Or great. And healthy sounded like a better choice of words because yeah yeah. Yeah. I do feel like they were supportive parents they tried really hard to be supportive like a lot of my interests they would let me they would support me in pursuing you know if I wanted to do dance or gymnastics or singing or whatever although they did my mom was a piano teacher and they did often she often tried to push me into piano and I did not do well I didn't like practicing. Mm-hmm. I like playing. I like playing, but I did not like practicing. And so, you know, she tried being my piano teacher and then that didn't work very well at all. And so then 
she tried having me do piano lessons with other teachers, which went a little bit better. It wasn't my love. I really loved moving my body. And so dancing was really my my love as a child. And they did very much support me in that and, and let me pursue that. So I think that in those, those ways, they were really great. So you described your adoption being private and it was under a closed system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All those yeah. closed adoptions from the 60s, mine was also closed, meaning most adoptees know this already, but meaning that it's difficult, if not impossible, to get information about your beginnings, like your original birth certificate yes. and things like that. And I know California is still a closed state. So I'm going to ask you, yes. have you been able to obtain your original birth certificate? No, but I do have other things that allowed me to find my birth family, which was then later confirmed through DNA stuff. I don't have my original birth certificate. I have made some attempts to obtain it, but not put in as much time and energy as might be required to obtain it from California. It's a pretty close state still, which is strange because, you know, we want to think of California as maybe being a more progressive you would think, like when yeah. I think Illinois, then New York, I'm like, what, what's California? What's right. going on? Yeah. Someone, and I don't know, but someone has theorized, I don't remember who told me this uh, theory, but it kind of makes sense to me that maybe there are a lot of very famous people in I California heard that who too. place children for adoption and don't want that known. And so it gets blocked frequently, you know, the legal activity towards that. That's unfortunate. That really makes me sad because I know quite a few adoptees born in California and, you know, all of us in our 50s and just the idea that you can't get an original birth certificate. Like it's just, yeah, yeah, it does something to me. Makes me me so angry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So angry. Yeah. So you would discover information about your biological family, so. Yeah, when I was a kid and growing up, I would occasionally ask, but not very often, or at least I don't remember asking very often. And at some point, and I don't remember when, but I want to say it was when I was a teenager, I, I must have said something to my mom, I don't remember what. And she said, oh, you know, I think we saw some paperwork in the hospital that we weren't supposed to see, and it had your birth mother's first name on it. And this is what I remember it being. And she told me a name. I had a friend at the time who had the same names. It was funny. I just, because it's kind of an unusual name and I I won't share it here just because I don't think she would want that. But I don't know, just having this friend with this name was just kind of this, oh, every time I talked to her or saw her, I would kind of think, oh, this is like the same person with the same name. I don't know, silly things that sometimes catch your attention as an adoptee when there's so much you don't really know, like about your, your identity, your history, your, it's just, there's nothing, you know? So I think sometimes we grasp for these little connections. Yes, for sure we do. So that was the first um, that I had heard this name. Um, And then later, much later as an adult, um, so I, I, my first marriage was to another adoptee <laughs> and both of us were, as they say, in the fog or, you know, we didn't really confront or look at that part of our, of our selves. Mm-hmm. And 
I think that a lot of things in our marriage and our relationship were very challenging as being two adoptees in the fog, not knowing that we were kind of reacting to each other from this place of trauma. Wow. Um, Like that's a whole conversation, isn't it? It is a whole conversation, (laughs) isn't it? And I've heard, I've heard some people talk about this sometimes when they've been married to adoptees, but, and so it's always an interesting conversation, especially when they are more aware of how these things are impacting the relationship. Um, It's only in retrospect that I can look back and say, Oh, like, maybe there was something else going on here. Right. Um, but we have three children and sadly we got divorced. And then when I married for the second time, which is my partner that I'm with now, who is just amazing in so many ways, including supporting me as an adoptee and trying his best to understand what that, you know, means for me. It wasn't until then that I sort of like really actively pursued looking for birth family. So as an adult and in my first marriage, I had signed up for a registry in California that was for adoptees and birth parents who had lost each other through relinquishment. So you could sign up on this registry. And then if someone matched, you know, I might say, oh, I was a baby born in Glendale, California on December 17, 1968. And then if someone, a birth mother had posted like, oh, I had a child born on the same day and in the same place, then you would, you know, connect and try and determine whether or not you were related. So this was back in the, I want to say the late 90s or early 2000s. But that's about all I did until getting in this very stable relationship where my husband now, he just, he needs me, but he also takes care of his own emotional stuff. So he doesn't need me in the way that my first partner did to take care of those things, you know, his emotions. So that really gave some stability to the marriage. And I think that was when I intuitively just knew it was the time to really put energy into searching. Mm. And so I'd let my parents know, my adoptive parents know that I was searching again. My, let's see, how did this go? Oh, then my dad, he said, my dad said something very similar to what my mom had said back in when I was in high school, which is, Oh, I think we saw some paperwork and it had, but he said, your birth father's name on it instead of my birth mother's. And he told me this whole name, a first name and a last name. And so then I did some internet stuff with that, tried to find that people by that name. And it's a pretty common name. And there were several hits. Interestingly, after I found my birth father, none of the hits were him. But then I did DNA testing. And at the same time, My adoptive father was retiring. So this was probably maybe two years later. And he said, oh, I'm cleaning out these old files and I have an adoption file for you. (laughs) Do you want it? And I said, yes, I do want it. (laughs) I didn't (laughs) know you had that. (laughs) Why didn't you tell me you had that? (laughs) I know. That's like so (laughs) comical Um, to me for any non-adoptive person to say, do you want your, yeah, do you want this information? Right. (laughs) Of course. Of course I do. How did you not know I did? I mean, I know I didn't, like, I wasn't super pushy with them over the years. I just, like, when I had a question, I would just kind of accept whatever they responded with. But I still think, like, wouldn't you know that I would want that? Right, yeah. (laughs) I mean, at this point, I'm in my 40s. 
sad. Yeah, I wanted it like decades ago. Exactly. It was just so strange to me. And to this day, and, you know, sadly, they're both gone now. They're both my uh, adoptive parents are both deceased. But and so I can't really probe anymore. But to this day, I don't know if they always knew they had that and just for whatever reason chose not to share it with me. Or if it really truly is something that they just forgot in the back of this file cabinet, which is hard for me to believe, but I guess it's possible. What's coming up for me right now is that they did keep it. They did have it because I think my adoptive mom, she burned everything she could, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like it wasn't going to ever be found. It wasn't going to exist. So I'm glad that they did keep it. And yeah, I'm kind of like you. They probably... They had it and that it was important. Yes. Yeah. I think they must have known. I just wish they had given it to me sooner. Yeah. And I'm really sorry for you that uh, your mom didn't, you know, destroyed yours. Yeah. I think the thoughts and my mother too was unable to conceive. And I think because of the times, like I remember telling me all my friends are having babies yeah, And it was just like what you did. You got married. Yeah. You know, she was Had born babies. in 1924 and you got yeah. married and you had children. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's hard to sometimes, because we, I think we have our own so much kind of trauma around adoption. And so it's really hard to recognize, I think sometimes maybe what those women who wanted children so badly and it was, the most important thing they could be doing according to societal standards. Exactly. And I think it was uh, devastating yes. that my mother couldn't have children. I really believe uh, that. And she was kind yeah. of a trailblazer. She did things that a lot of people weren't doing um, mm-hmm. because that's what she wanted. And so adoption was the, the way to have a child. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you do the DNA testing. Was that a yeah. what, recently? So or? The, yeah, so I did the DNA testing. This was about, oh gosh, maybe 12 years ago now. So I did the DNA testing, and I also got this file, like right around the same time. And in this file, there's an in, it's called an infant release report. It was done in the hospital, and it's it's relinquishing me to my adoptive parents' custody. So it's not an agreement to, in fact, it's very clear, it's interesting on the on the form because it does say this consent is for the release of my child from the hospital only and does not constitute a consent or relinquishment of my child for adoption. So there must have been something that came later, um, which I don't have. But this infant release report does have my birth mother's full name, her address, my at the time her address my birth father's full name you know so there was so much more trackable information with this address and this name there's also receipts from that my parents paid through the attorney to the doctors that attended to me and to my birth mother i imagine that was part of the adoption agreement these receipts have her name on them too there's no name for me everything says baby bird, which is my surname. My surname at birth was bird. And so all my paperwork, all this paperwork says baby bird, and then has all 
my birth mother and father's information. So for this closed adoption that, you know, I don't know if my parents were not, my adoptive parents were not supposed to receive this information, this paperwork, or if it just people weren't as careful as they thought they were being. Anyway, within a week found both my birth, identified who I thought was both my birth mother and my birth father, sent off letters to each, got a response almost right away from my birth father saying maybe he was, and he wanted to keep talking, which was nice. Didn't receive anything from my birth mother. And then more research because, you know, as adoptees, we're pretty good at research sometimes. Found out that my birth mother went on to have two other children and I reached out to both of them through Facebook and one of them responded to me and said he didn't think that his mother was my mother. But then right after that, I did receive a letter from her. It was a letter requesting no communication contact. She did confirm that she was my birth mother. And then she also asked that I never talk to her or contact her or anyone who knows her, including family members ever again. And I mean, I was devastated. I, I'm sorry, I get emotional still. Yeah, um, that's heartbreaking. I, yeah, I just, I didn't even know how much I carried until I got that letter. People who know me, like I'm, I'm pretty good at identifying and expressing emotions, but I'm pretty, like, I don't know if stoic's the right word or word you would use, but in the expression of those emotions, I'm, I'm usually pretty, I don't know, settled maybe is the word, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I just dropped to the floor. It, it was like a gut punch. I've never experienced an emotion quite like that before. It was so incredibly painful and I just sobbed. I think there's these traumas that we carry as adoptees and the relinquishment trauma. That's the trauma that I feel in my body, in my bones, in my gut. I think it's always going to be there. I think this is what Nancy Barrier refers to as the primal wound. I know some people have a hard time with that language, but it, I think that's what it is, you know, whatever you call it. <laughs> to me, I had not fully experienced or felt it in that way before. And it's very different from what I consider to be more sort of like cognitive traumas. <laughs> like when you think about how crazy is it that we just give our children to strangers to raise right. <laughs> and think that this is okay. Like to me, that's, that's also traumatic or it's traumatic that I can't get my original birth certificate, but that's like a cognitive trauma. It's like, I recognize how unfair, unjust it is, you know, and I can get very angry about it or up in arms about it. But this relinquishment trauma, that is so deep in my body. It's that pre-verbal trauma that I experienced at birth. It's felt hard to describe and just so visceral. Mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. why I spend many times being saddened or mm -hmm. feeling, yeah, feeling deep sadness versus mm -hmm. anger. Yes. Because, yeah, it's, it, I'm carrying something that goes way back. And I had a therapist last year, wonderful therapist that told me each time that I experience loss, like someone dies, mm. um, it takes me back to all the other losses, including yeah. at the very beginning. And and yeah. I believe that. 
Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah, that's why yeah. it feels so heavy for me sometimes. But as far as I'm concerned, I manage and learn to live with what mm. happened. And yeah, being aware yeah. of the shifts and then learning to, to do something or maybe do nothing, maybe just be still. Yeah. Cause it, and know, experience it. Because right. it will pass. We don't, we don't stay in one state for very long when we allow ourselves to feel it. Yeah, it, it's when pass. we fight against it. Yeah, it's when we fight against it that sometimes that really extends that feeling out. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of that idea of acceptance, uh, radical acceptance. It has helped me so much to, I, I don't know how to say this right, but like to take ownership of that pain. So often I think we, we get stuck in this was not fair. Right. And it, and it's other people hurt me, you know, and I've been hurt and I, and I have this trauma and this just isn't fair. And we kind of get, we get stuck there a little bit. And what has helped me so much is to say, yes, this wasn't fair. I didn't do this to myself. This, this happened to me. And it's mine now. <laughs> so I have to figure out how to carry it and hold it and know when it comes up and find ways to, as you say, manage it and feel it until it passes. So even the managing is something that I might say to myself, okay, I know that if I go listen to my favorite song, my feelings may shift. And then I tell myself, and it's okay if they don't, they will eventually. Mm, so I'm still good. allowing myself to feel whatever I'm feeling. I'm not actually trying to put a lot of energy into, into change. I'm not so focused on the change, it, trying to change it or not feel it. I'm more focused on how do I let myself feel it for as long as it's present and not kind of get lost in it. Right. Yeah, my my therapist used to say, just reassure yourself that it's not going to destroy you, though it feels the way it does. Yeah. 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 Just being alive, especially as an adoptee, I think just living is evidence that it hasn't destroyed us. Mm -hmm. We got plenty of evidence. Yep. Yeah. All the things we've been through some things over these years in life. Everybody Everybody has, and yeah, yeah, you've got proof that you are a survivor, and that you'll—I I say you'll get through this too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Done hard things before. You can do this. <laughs> exactly. I think that's what we as adoptees bring to the table, oh, uh, yeah. big time. Is that yeah? You've been through hard things. Yeah. Early. The hardest thing from the, from the, you know, for those of us, whether you're adopted at birth uh, as I was or adopted maybe out of the foster care system as an older child, like you've done the unthinkable hard thing at such an early age. Right. As humans, we're resilient. And additionally, as adoptees, we are so resilient. We just don't always recognize it. We just don't always see it or say to ourselves, like, I am, I'm resilient, I can get through this. Yeah, it's like we don't recall necessarily 
all that yeah. we have been through. Like really put it in perspective. And as you say, I was in foster care for two years. Like mm. I can't even imagine a two-year-old wondering what is going on here. Yeah. Two-year-olds are very aware of, oh, who, yes. of who's who. Yep. And then yeah. being plucked from a family of seven yeah, right. This is a busy household, mostly boys. <laughs> it's a very busy household. Yeah, it's loud. And then being placed with two parents who are old enough to be my grandparents, and it's just oh. the three of us. Like, I'm just yeah. picturing that. I have space for that two year old quite often with what that yeah. must have been like for her. Yeah. And I don't even say me, like I distance myself from. Right, yeah. Like, it's hard to believe that that happened to me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you are in reunion, so to speak. I mean, you know who's who. You you know who your birth mother is. Yeah. And you know who your birth father is. Like, yeah. it, it, it does something to me to know that you had their first and last names. Like, I just think, wow, that was that was good that you had something yes. concrete to work with. And Yes, it helped a lot, even though the DNA testing eventually would have yielded those matches mm-hmm. um but it would have been through very distant like it would have been through second cousin probably is how i would have matched to find them that way would have been much more challenging so to have those names and do that research and actually it was the address because then the address gave us ideas about i say us because it was uh, my husband helped me so much with this part of my search it gave us information about where they might've gone to high school. And so then we were able to find them both in yearbooks in their respective high schools. And that was how we kind of first identified them and found addresses for them. Then when the DNA came back, none of my immediate, at this point I have some first cousins who have done some DNA, but you know, none of my birth parents or birth or my half brothers, I have two half brothers had done DNA or still have done DNA. Well, that's not true. My birth father did after we started communicating. We did DNA through another testing service, not Ancestry, just to confirm. Yeah. So what does that look like reunion on your paternal side? It's interesting. He never married. He, to my knowledge, never had any other children. And I think to his knowledge, too, I think he's being truthful about that. We talk maybe twice a month on the phone. He lives in California. I visited him a few times, maybe three times now, four times now. And my boys, I have three boys, and they've all met him at this point in time. But he's kind of limited in, I think it's just that he's never really done a lot with relationship before. He was an only child growing up, so he has no siblings. He never married, and his longest relationship, committed relationship, was three years back in his 20s. I I think he just doesn't really know how to connect very well. Nice, you know, and I certainly appreciate and value that he communicates with me, and we have these phone calls, but he retired young. He doesn't do a whole lot. You just have a lot to talk about when we talk. And so it's just kind of limited in that way. And then I do have more of a relationship with one of my half brothers. And that's been tricky to navigate, I think, for both of us. I, I don't know what he would say, but I, I think it has been just because 
it's complicated. His mom doesn't want to communicate with me. And so, you know, I think, I imagine Kelly experiences some loyalty to her and that's hard. But also we have, in my opinion, great FaceTime conversations in more recent, this last year, especially we've probably talked at least once a month or once every other month on FaceTime and we've met hmm, maybe five times. And when I'm with him, I really feel that genetic mirroring that they talk about so often. He and I are both, we talk with our hands. We can talk, what's the word, like kind of dramatically <laughs> or, or just big, you know, like big expressions. We're expressive. That's probably the right word. We're both pretty expressive. So with him, I feel the most of that kind of genetic identity and connection that I've ever experienced with the exception of my children. I, I've always felt it with them, but with people who are my birth family. Mm-hmm. I'm happy you experienced yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you something. I don't think I've ever asked anybody. It just came up for me. <laughs> and you don't have to answer it. <laughs> oh, no, please. But I know adoptees who, plenty, who have experienced secondary rejection. Mm. And, and I want to ask you, if you had a crystal ball and knew that was going to happen, would you have still searched? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that would I, be my answer, too. Yeah. 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 It's there's something about knowing, you know, the more I know, the more grounded I feel, the more real I feel, the more roots it gives me. I think... I never recognized that I didn't have great roots, <laughs> a strong sense of who I was. So just even knowing what I know, and I've done a lot of sort of digging into different family lines and stuff like that. So I have ancestral stories <laughs> of birth family that were shared, you know, on website, various websites, because a lot of them are into genealogy. And so I never had that growing up. My adopted mom was really into genealogy. Mormons are really into genealogy. And she would tell us these stories about our ancestors. I'm doing air quotes, which you can't see because they weren't really my biological ancestors, but she would tell me and my, I have an adopted brother. He's nine years younger than I am. And she would tell us these stories as if they should mean something, you know, but they didn't feel like they meant anything, but finding more and more out about my birth family, even those ancestor stories. Like now it just feels like I'm so much more grounded and rooted and have a stronger sense of identity than I did before. So that was a long answer to yes, even experiencing the pain of that rejection. And it was very, very painful and still is very, very painful. I would never do it differently. Yes, I had an adoptee on recently as a guest, and I loved how she described why Search and Reunion gave her so much that she needed because her reunion did not end well at all. And yet she says so eloquently that she has more information than she ever had before, and that is empowering for all adoptees. Like, we just want to know more. We want to know as much as we can about yep. where we come from. 
you know, it blows my mind that people cannot understand this part of being an adoptee or being anyone who doesn't know their biological history. Of course, we want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the power in the podcast, right? In any yeah. adoption-related podcast, when adult adoptees repeatedly say pretty much the same thing, mainstream will finally get, yeah, oh, I get it. I get it. You know, like if they didn't get it before, now more than ever with the adoptee movement, they're coming to understand us at 40, 50, 60 plus years old saying the same thing. Yes, we want to know if if you have something that pertains to us, by all means, hand it over. Yeah. So what would you say has been the most rewarding and or challenging thing about being connected to the, the community? Mm, the best thing, the very best thing is having people who understand. The first time I walked into a room with all adoptees was at a small retreat. It was the first one that Anne Heffron and Pam Cordano did. You know, there were 10 of us and everyone in that room was an adoptee. So 12 altogether, including Pam and Anne. Everyone in that room was an adoptee and my nervous system just settled. I could feel it. And when we talked about the various things we were talking about at that retreat, I didn't have to explain anything. Everyone just got it. And that felt so good. So that's been the most wonderful thing. And then I think the hardest thing is we're all carrying this trauma. And so you never know when that's going to get activated or right. how it's going to get activated or how people will will kind of react when it gets activated. And so I think sometimes the online adoptee community in particular can feel a little bit like a minefield mm-hmm. where you're going to step or what you're going to get. But so I do think the reward is worth it, that connection and just being mindful of yeah, sometimes it's it's we activate something or something gets activated in us that brings with it a very strong reaction. Right, unknowingly. Yeah. 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 Right. But I yeah. but those are the key words, being mindful. Yeah. And aware. And yeah, yeah maybe a little damage control when it becomes yes. uh, obvious. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. find and that sometimes boundaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just stepping back and recognizing, yeah, that people are in different places. Yes. Um, as I'm a part of the community, I recognize that right away. I mean, a lot of people are yeah. brand new. They're just listening to a podcast. Yeah. They're just getting in a writing group, going to yeah. a retreat. Uh, you name it. I know when I was brand new, not only was it overwhelming, but it was overstimulating. Yeah. And I didn't really know what was going on for a while there. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, just being right. aware, yeah, being aware and mindful that this is happening with adoptees all over. Um, yep. It's nothing personal, right? I love the four agreements yeah. and the one of them by Ruiz mm-hmm. uh, is don't take it personal. Yep. Because it's rarely anything to do with you personally. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah, to do with their own stuff and my own stuff. And, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? Gosh, I don't, I don't think so. Thank you for having me. It's just been wonderful to talk with you about this. 
Yeah, and I'm looking forward to us spending that first weekend mm-hmm. in October together. And I just see it being not only a healing experience, but just that whole fellowship with other people that are experiencing the grief, the loss, the secrecy, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> all the yeah. secrets. Uh, yeah, like being able to just relax because we know we don't have to explain. Like you said, we don't have yeah. to explain what that feels like. Yeah. And we're all in this together. I love um, High with Hope and Healing. Togetherness Heals. I love that title. Yes. And I yes. believe it's so. Me too. Yep. Yeah. Community and connection. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that I might read for this episode in the intro or the outro. And it is by Tara Brock. And it does suggest that togetherness does heal and that mm-hmm. you can go and, you know, do your meditation, your breathing exercises, be alone. I'm a big loner. And yeah. all that's said and done, there's something very powerful when you can be in the same space with someone else who cares. Yes. Yeah. So important. Yep. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been wonderful. We never know when something deeply sad will creep up on us from what seems like from nowhere. Oh, but it is far from nowhere. It comes from remembering, recalling all the losses and grief endured over decades. I believe secondary rejection can be one of the most painful and hardest things to manage or live with. But Kristen is proof that it can be done. I asked Kristen that if she had known her birth mother would not embrace her back into her life, would she still have searched for her? Kristen's answer says it all. We as adoptees often want to know as much as possible, even if things don't turn out as we would prefer. Through the difficulty, we might choose to focus on what's possible instead of what isn't. As a therapist, Kristen expressed having a bird's eye view in her professional therapy practice as an adoptee, seeing other adoptees. I love that she has been intentional in helping so many through the terrain of relinquishment and adoption. Let me share a paragraph from Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock to drive home the point of being in community with members of the Constellation. When we feel cut off from others, our lives too can feel like a wasteland, empty of meaning, hollow and thin, We can neither awaken ourselves nor those around us from the trance of unworthiness. When into our wasteland comes someone who genuinely cares, we can come back to life in an instant. Thank you, Kristen, for having this conversation with me. I could talk for hours about the shifts that happen in our perspectives as adoptees. It resonates with me to acknowledge and be aware of them. We can move into managing the shifts as hard as it might be when they happen by choosing to be kind to ourselves. Self-compassion is paramount and best addressed by considering how would we treat a friend. 
Kristen, you help us to know or remember how important it is to first choose being a friend to ourselves. Let us all recall as often as possible a powerful biblical verse when we're in the midst of adversity. This too shall pass. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit JenniferDianeGhoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.